Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited for today's episode. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say uh, thank you to our patron supporters. Thanks uh, so much for your support. It's because of your giving that I get to produce uh, free content like this and put it out there on the internet to uh, spread the truth of Christianity. And so thank you so much for your support. You too can become a patron supporter by following the Patreon link in the description below and heading on over to our Patreon uh, page. Patreon website and becoming a patron over there. With that, you get access to the bonus segment, as well as uh, I've actually got some merchandise up now that comes with your monthly subscription. That's a new thing that Patreon's doing, so uh, if it doesn't work properly or whatever, I'm sorry, it's a brand new thing that they're doing, but uh, got that up and, and running over there for our patron supporters. So just follow that link over there if you're interested uh, in supporting the show. Uh, but for now, I'm excited to introduce my special guest to you. His name is John Depew. He's been on the show before. John, how are you doing today, sir? Doing great. How are you, Hayden? I'm doing good. And uh, maybe somebody from the uh, live chat can fill me in or not, but John's uh, video footage seems to be doing perfectly fine, but mine seems to have a lag, at least from my perspective. Sometimes the perspectives are different, so hopefully everything's working out all right on YouTube. But if it's not, just let me know in the live chat. Um, I just looked over to the live chat. Somebody says, John looks handsome. So that's... Uh, that's while while true. That's not particularly was helpful for what I was talking about. But <laughs> <laughs> was it my wife who said that, or was that no, uh, no, no? It's uh, somebody else. But uh, anyway, so uh, John, excited to have you on. Uh, of course, John has been on the show before, but for those who may not be uh, familiar with who he is, I thought uh, John it might be helpful if you gave a brief introduction. Sure. Um, yeah, my name is John DePew. I currently uh, direct the Faith Formation. <laughs> Programs. I'm going to turn that off so it's not uh, annoying. Um, currently direct the faith formation programs at a church in Cary, North Carolina. Um, it's United Church of Christ Church, and I've been doing that for um, three years now, just over three years. Um, so I've been working in Christian ministry for a while now, and I, I did my seminary degree at Duke Divinity School. So um, I currently reside in, in North Carolina. Yeah. Thank you. So John and I have become uh, friends over like the past, I don't know, month or so uh, from whenever him and his his wife, Laura Robinson, came on the show at the same time, interviewed them both at the same time. And uh, we've been texting and chatting ever since then and talking about theology and stuff. And we just come from completely different backgrounds. And so it's been very, very interesting for me to hear from John uh, about his perspective on things. And so it, it's been very informative. I've, I've learned a ton in like a month about uh, just <laughs> basically because I just... Uh, yeah, like I already said, just two completely different backgrounds. Uh, we just wasn't even aware of a lot of different opinions. Of course, you always find that, and so it's always fun to learn. Uh, but anyway, one of the things we, we talk a lot about is Pauline soteriology. And so by that, I just mean, by Pauline, I mean the letters that Paul has written, uh, just really quickly for those who may or may not be familiar. By Pauline, I just mean the, the letters of Paul in the New Testament. Um, and by soteriology, I mean the doctrine of salvation. So we're talking about what was Paul's view of salvation. What is sin? What is man, uh, humankind's problem? How does Jesus fix that problem? That sort of stuff. And so I really wanted, to, um, and I found find John's perspective on, on all of this very uh, interesting. And, and actually I've, what I've been finding is that we actually agree on a lot and uh, we've just been coming, kind of come at it from different angles perhaps or something like that. I'm not sure. 
Okay, we're back live. Sorry if it cut out. Uh, I don't know why it keeps doing that. But anyway, so we, in our, our private conversations, we've just had such a fruitful dialogue about uh, Pauline soteri soteriology that I just wanted to, to do it publicly here on the show because I've, I've benefited from it so much and wanted to share it with all of our, our, our viewers and listeners. So um, anyway, John, maybe you can uh, explain wh uh, what the focus of uh, on Paul is for, like... Um, why is it so important to zoom in on Paul? Is there, does Paul have some kind of primacy? Uh, why are his letters so special? That's a good question. Um, I think the main reason why I, I, I think Paul is so important for us to talk about why discussions of Paul are so crucial is because he simply has been such a predominant figure in the, Christ, in the history of the Christian tradition. Um, most of what we take uh, to be... Uh, sort of foundational doctrines for um, the church is rising out of Paul's letters. So whether or not we want to acknowledge it or not, um, we're all Pauline Christians in some way. P Paul has just so influenced the history of Christianity that we can't not discuss what Paul's gospel actually is. Um, so that that's basically what I would say. There is a, a kind of primacy there, just simply in terms of how Christianity has developed. And so we should be in those conversations about what he actually said um, and what his account of the gospel was. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's, that's definitely pretty true. So, uh, so let's get to some of the questions I have and it. It may seem sporadic to the audience. I just didn't know how else to, to formulate it, but I do kind of have a structure here. And so before we can talk, so the gospel is good news and perhaps before we can, and it has been said many times before, but perhaps before we can talk about the good news, we need to discuss what the bad news is or what the problem is in the first place. And so what is, from Paul's perspective, uh, humankind's problem in the first place? And I'll just open it yeah. up to you. For sure. And you just indicated something important about um, we actually need to begin the other way around in some sense. Um, if we're actually thinking with Paul, I wouldn't want to start off too negatively because I don't think he does. Um, so before we sort of dive into the problem, I kind of want to just give a refresher for those who heard my last interview with, uh, with when Laura was on with me um, and to sort of touch on what God's plan is for the cosmos from before its foundation in Jesus. So just give a quick summary of that, and then we can sort of go into the problem. Um, because I really think that this is the location out from which Paul is actually thinking about everything else. And this, of course, includes sin. Um, so the the divine plan, as I, I think Paul sees it, is that God has elected to create a people to live in fellowship forever with his son, and their spirit. Um, and this sort of divine fellowship is characterized by relationships of unconditional love and life and joy. And so this is the wonderful plan that's at the heart of all reality for Paul. Um, and it's in the light of this wonderful reality that he's able to see what's actually trying to knock it off track. So once we lay out that gospel, then we can see more clearly with a renewed understanding what um, the problem is. And th the reason why I want to say this up front is that, that there really is a tendency in, in Pauline interpretation to begin with an account of the problem that you've reconstructed, and then to sort of think forward toward a corresponding gospel solution. Um, 
But if we're really going to understand Paul, I think we need to grasp that he's actually thinking the other way around. Um, so th- there's a whole history of interpretation that does this, I think, the wrong way. Um, so just to kind of start there. Um, so what do we learn about the problem right. in the light of God's plan, right? Mm-hmm. I think the basic problem confronting humanity is actually death. It's corruption, finitude, and death, which is the outworking of this whole nexus of, of problems um, with with sin and the flesh and evil and the powers. So let's kind of start with the, the flesh dimension of this. Um, so humans are in the grip of sinful desires for Paul. Um, and these desires are actually sort of frustrating their ability to do good. And these desires are sort of pulling them away from living with God and one another in loving relationship. And I think we could talk about these desires more accurately in terms of lust. I think lust is probably a better word to to use. Um, These lusts are basically manipulating God's instructions and turning them into kind of opportunities to do the wrong thing. Um, And the way that Paul kind of summarizes or condenses this frustrating situation is by using the term flesh, or the Greek for that is sarx. Um, so we see Paul in Galatians, so I'm going to kind of reference sure. text throughout this to kind of show that I'm not making this up. Um, <laughs> in Galatians 5.17, Paul says that, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is the flesh. And I think Paul sees humanity not really having any ability in and of themselves to break away from these lusts, to kind of resist them in any way. Um, And we see this pretty clearly in Romans 7, 18, and also in just Romans 7 in general, we really see this kind of account of being constrained by, um, by these lusts. And it says, for I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I can't do it. Right. Um, one way to kind of clarify this, and I don't want to push this analogy too far, but I, I actually think it's helpful to think about substance abuse at this point. A chronic substance abuser um, is technically accountable for their actions, right? Um, they still have agency. They're still people. But any sense that they're actually free to choose one course of action over another course of action is actually a really horribly unaware account of their struggles to these desires, right? Um, And so the resulting kind of addictive behavior that arises out of that um, is really deeply destructive, both to themselves and to the people around them, um, the people that love them. So on some deep level, I think Paul is essentially saying something like that. We're all kind of addicts. We're substance abusers um, who are sort of trapped and imprisoned by the flesh. So I think that's one way of getting that. And this is something that I've learned from my mentor and teacher, Douglas Campbell. I think that's that's kind of the, a good analogy for what the flesh is. Um, so that's one dimension of it, the, uh, of the problem. Um, I would also want to talk about sin specifically. Um, and Paul characterizes sin in, in kind of a similar way. Um, but he'll he'll dramatize sin in terms of a a power or a force. So I think we could think about this in terms of sin with a capital S, sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, sin is something that deceives, and it does so for Paul through God's instructions, just like the flesh was doing. 
and then it sort of goes on to wage war on us and enslave us and imprison us and all of that. And you see this in Romans 7 pretty clearly. Um, so this is from Romans 7, 14, and then also verse 23. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So there's a sense in which sin sort of constrains us and holds us captive for Paul. Um, so sin isn't actually, if we're thinking in a Pauline way, sin isn't a sort of individual kind of transgression or something like that. It's not this sort of, uh, it's not a kind of misstep or a bad, bad decision for him or breaking some kind of rule that you've been given. Um, it's actually much more serious for him. I want him. to ask you something about that, if it's okay. I've been trying not to interject, but I do have some no. questions. Uh, so on the, on the, <laughs> on the on the sin thing, would you say that Paul speaks of sin as if it were this uh, ontological, like it had an ontological status, like it was actually this thing which really does have power? Or would you say he's just speaking as if that's the case, or would you say no? He really believes that there is a thing that has that it's called sin and exercises power. Yeah, good question. Does that make um, sense? It does make sense. Okay. Uh, so does sin, another way to put this would would be, does sin have com some kind of like positive ontology? Yeah. Right? Um, right? I don't think it does for Paul. I think the language that he's using to describe it is language that we use for things that have some kind of positive ontology. But I think that for him it's actually a negative ontology and maybe even like a negative metaphysics would be kind of a way to talk about it it's um and, and like, this would sort of go with yeah go ahead no i was gonna say uh, when you said a negative metaphysics or a negative reality yeah. i didn't know perhaps you meant like uh like thomas aquinas talks about evil evil doesn't actually have an ontological status evil is just the absence of goodness uh in some ways i'm thinking more in terms of augustine actually where evil is a sort of privation of the good that's what um, I mean. yeah, it's a privation yeah it's notness right so right. and Karl Barth is a, a nice way of putting this too with his language of of das nichtiger which really is just referring to like no-ness or nothing it, 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 but that's not really what it is it really is a kind of notness right okay but the way that Paul describes it is using force language so it does gotcha. exert something on humanity but it's it's right. not I think positive ontological categories are only for um, good creation, I would say. I gotcha. Uh, okay, cool. That's a great question, though. Uh, yeah. Before turning you loose again, uh, <laughs> what, what are your – I was trying to branch off from something that you said, and now I can't remember what the connection was. Um, but what do you think of, say, original sin, or are we are – we, like, do we have to sin – or something along those lines. Um, do you think we inherit sin such that we we have no choice but to sin? Um, I don't know. I'm not. There are various accounts of original sin. Um, I don't really what, know. What, what's interesting about this? I think this is maybe where I was going. Is is the slavery of sin, um, and that sin holds us in slavery, and so. Mm -hmm. A say a a five point Calvinist perhaps might hear that and say, "Yep, absolutely," because we inherit 
a sinful nature or or they would actually say a guilty nature i think from from adam and so yeah i don't know what do you think about that but then there's also this account of sin where it's like well actually sin is more it's it's less about um my freedom of choice and it's actually just more about the cosmos it's is is under the reign of sin right yeah i I would offer that what you just said now um i i just don't i don't know if i really buy the idea that there's some sort of like inherited or generational kind of account of sin where it's kind of going through um basically the the seed of a person into the next person and the next person and that's what we i just don't think that 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 coheres really with what paul is saying and i I think you really hit the nail on the head with it's really just that the whole cosmos is sort of right it seems that whenever adam sinned for lack of better term or perhaps this is a good term i don't know it tore off a hole in the fabric of reality and now yeah. it's just it's just reality is not what was originally intended. I think that yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Cool. And, and I always I always think it's very interesting that um, I'm just now giving it some thoughts on things that you've been saying, and then I'll you know you can take it over whenever you want. But uh, I just always find it really interesting that Paul kind of uh, anthropomorphizes sin, makes it this sound as if it has a positive ontological status like you were right. saying it it acts it, mm-hmm. it does things it has power over us and then that, but that's exactly how i find or i say i read god talking about sin in genesis chapter 4 when he tells cain that um sin it desires you and you must mm-hmm. rule over it so you actually mm-hmm. see the positive ontological status you also see the word rule or reign um, mm-hmm. In in opposite direction, he's telling Cain that you have to rule over it, um, mm-hmm. and so there's, I've just always found that very interesting that there's that connection there between the way God talks about sin in Genesis four and the way Paul talks about it in Romans. Yeah, definitely, that's well spotted. Yeah, I like that. Uh, but anyway, so uh, what else has to do with our problem? What else did you have to say about the <laughs> problem or the sin? Yeah. I know I, I hope I didn't ruin your train of thought. If so, I can move on to some other questions, but if you have more to say, <laughs> please do. I don't like to sit here in the negative stuff, so sorry if I'm kind of No, I enjoy of listening, so by all means, ramp, yeah, go on. <laughs> yeah, just to, to kind of, before we move on, the next account would be the, Paul talks about the powers else mm-hmm. in of his his letters too and that's part of that whole nexus of the of the problem um but what i would want to emphasize is that for paul in this constrained enslaved situation we're not free in that situation and we're, we're going to talk about hopefully we'll get to accounts of freedom and agency later on um but i i think that's really important we can't will our way out of this right Paul says that we can will the right thing, but we ju- we don't do it um, because we're constrained by it, by by sin. Um, so I would just want to make that point really quickly, and then we can kind of pick up on that later on. But um, so we're in this constraint situation, and and part of that constraint is also to do with the powers. So Paul will refer to um, the rulers of this age in First Corinthians. So that's out of First Corinthians two. Um, I'll talk about cosmic powers of this present darkness in Ephesians. It's coming out of chapter 6. And then elemental spirits of the world in Galatians 4. And he talks about the sort of leader of this kind of legion of powers as being Satan. 
Um, he talks about Satan from time to time. Um, and these powers for him are, in some sense, occupying, quote-unquote, the air in his cosmology. And I really want to be clear here, because I don't want to give ammo to any mythicists that might be listening to this. Um, my mind went, yeah. Yeah. Paul does have a conception of these powers sort of roaming uh, this space, that kind of lies above the heavens or lies above the earth and sort of below the heavens. And they're kind of occupying that space for him cosmologically. Um, and they're evil powers. They're warring against God and all of that. And then he'll talk about these powers um, as crucifying Jesus. He does that one time. Um, but there's no sense in which that crucifixion is happening up in the air, right? These powers are actually affecting us here and now in the earthly realm. So I, I wouldn't want to, even though I, I will grant that there, Paul's cosmology does entail a kind of like the powers are above us in some sense. It doesn't seem like they're completely detached. Otherwise I, they wouldn't I don't really think matter. There's the dichotomy that uh, somebody like a mythicist would want to make. Uh, yeah. The, right. The, the, the rulers of this age are like you were saying uh, for Paul and the new, new Testament authors. And uh, I think even, you know, second temple Judaism more broadly are, in the air or in the uh, whatever state between the earth and the heavens, so, yeah, but yeah, they right. they're mirroring what's happening here on earth and they're affecting what's happening here on earth. Right. So yeah, to 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 have an event happen up there is to have an event happen down here. All that, that's sure. the way I understand yeah. it. Um, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I don't totally. want to say too much because I'm actually preparing for this <laughs> for next month. It's gonna be part <laughs> of my argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep it a under wraps for a bit. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, just to kind of sum up what I've been talking about with the problem is that Paul is pretty consistently emphasizing um, the problem as oppressive powers or an oppressive force. Um, it's the bondage of, of sin, the flesh, evil, the powers, and all of these things sort of deal out death, right? The wages of sin is death. So they, that's what's being paid out. Um, from this problem and this problem really affects everything like you mentioned it's it, the entire cosmos that's being constrained by this um, so that's how i would talk about the principal problem sure that, yeah. um for so, all faith mm, humanity yeah i think that's pretty well understood um there's some things that are notably missing from that that we're going to discuss here in a little bit um but first, I just want to ask, okay, so, well, actually, I do this every single episode, sorry. Uh, if you have a question, you can tag at Help Me Believe in the live chat if you're watching live, and we'll have a time of Q&A at the end, um, and we'll address them there. But if you tag at Help Me Believe, that helps me see it when I'm scrolling through there. So, in other words, don't tag me uh, unless you're asking a question that you want me to address in the uh, live Q&A near the end of the interview. Uh, also, if you do want to send a super chat, which is another way to donate there in the live chat. Um, I'll address those first. Um, so you can do that as well. But just tag it to help me believe, and I'll address the questions at the end. Okay, so w we know what the, the problem is, and like you said, it's important to, when you're actually studying Paul's letters, you see what the problem is by paying attention, basically, to what he's saying the solution is. So you can kind of dissect or uh, deduce what the problem is by listening t or reading Paul talk about the solution. So uh, that that's the, the next question. I kind of put them in the wrong order there. But uh, what what is the solution? How does Jesus's life, death, 
and resurrection fix the problem that you've been discussing? Yeah, so how does how does God solve this problem that really has to do with sin and death? Um, so I think it's easy for us to kind of observe in the world that all living things decay and ultimately die, um, and that we're all sort of constantly declining toward that end, right, at various speeds. Um, but I, I actually think that this kind of obvious uh, thing that we can see helps us at least be open to this crucial insight view, which is that sin and all that it contaminates doesn't have a future. It can't have a future. It, it needs to be terminated, and it needs to die. Um and I think this termination, because the problem is so cosmic, the termination has to apply to everything that sin and death have infected. So in Romans 8, you have Paul saying that the entirety of creation is subjected to futility, right, in 8.20. And then it's also in bondage to decay in 21. Um, and I think that our... Our contamination, what, what's being affected by sin, is too deep and too comprehensive to allow for some kind of strict separation between good and bad <laughs> to deal with this. We're all shot through with evil, and we're all shot through with good, I think. There's a kind of simultaneity there um, that, has, that goes for all of created reality. We don't lack goodness, but we're still constrained by sin and evil. Um, yeah, so this is something I want to point. I want to comment on too, because I I totally agree. I think we kind yeah. of have. Uh, I think human nature is kind of a state of potency. Uh, yeah, I mean, you can do. I mean, and and where I'm coming from is that I'm kind of I kind of get fed up. I know I should be more patient, but I kind of get fed up with people saying. They'll they'll see something bad happen in the news. Um, they'll even do this in their written literature on the subject. But they'll see something bad happen in the news, and they'll say, uh, "See total depravity." You know, how, <laughs> right. could, you how could you possibly deny yeah. total depravity when stuff like right. this is happening? And I want to say, well, you know, look at the fireman who's running into the house to save people. Look, sure. total sure. goodness. I don't know. Sure. Like that, the fact that people do horrible things doesn't mean we're totally depraved in the sense that all we ever seek is evil. I don't yes, think that's right. what Paul meant in Romans 3. Uh, of course, you yeah, know, yeah. we don't want to talk about that, but even if you take that to actually be Paul speaking, I still don't think it says that. But uh, Oh, yeah, uh, I think it is. A, um, I really do. I think, um, yeah, I think Paul's account of depravity is just what I've been saying about the constraint stuff and the imprisonment stuff. In that sense, we're all we're all depraved. Um, that's an account of depravity. I think it's a, a more accurate account of depravity than just we we all just basically suck. Um, yeah. So I totally agree with you on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, I just want to point that out because it's just something that yeah it kind of drives me nuts. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I, I understand. <laughs> it drives me nuts. I, I because I see that simultaneity in 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 it, pretty much everybody, even people who. Right. You have done bad, th really bad things. Like there, it, there is some goodness there. I think for everybody. Um, 
but but even I think so, you're saying that we cannot will yeah. ourselves out of this situation. But yeah, no, yeah, on our own, right? Um, so to kind of illustrate this point about the contamination of sin being so deep, I kind of think of like a, a computer that has a virus that can't just be removed by some kind of like cheap antivirus program or something like that. There's there's a lot of good things on that computer, but there's also a lot of bad things on that computer too, that it was basically affecting the entire thing. Um, in some cases you need a new computer or you need some kind of really fundamental kind of re, re uh, ordering of that, that computer. Um, basically the, the bunch has been spoiled by, by sin. The entirety has been spoiled by it, even if there is good there. Um, so I think the first part of God's solution is actually going to be death, but I, th I think it's it's a certain kind of death, and I want to be clear about that. I death may have the first word in God's solution, but it doesn't have the last word, um, especially with respect to kind of God's total victory over all things. And I, I think some understanding of Paul's Jewish background at this point is actually going to be pretty important because many Jews and Paul understood this too. Um, knew that God wasn't a God of death. God was The God of Israel was a God of life. Mm -hmm. um, so God's ultimate solution is actually going to be, um, for Paul, a pretty Jewish one. Um, it's, it's about a God of life, giving life. Um, but Paul is obviously going to do something very different than a lot of Jews in his day would have done in the light of Jesus. So to kind of build on the previous point, um, this sort of evil that we're entangled with needs to be terminated, right. as I just said. Um, this uh, this it, really comes back to, and I'll make a note so that you don't lose your train of thought, but yeah. this, no, uh, yeah. I just can't help myself sometimes. But uh, what, are you, what are you drinking, by the way? This is Pernicious IPA. Nice. I don't know if you've heard that. It's from Wicked Weed Brewing Company out of Asheville, North Carolina. Nice. It's good stuff. This yeah. is called Tap Water. So anyway, the idea of death being part of the solution is something that I'm fascinated by a little bit because it's something I've always thought, but I've always been like, well, I don't know if I should say that publicly or not, but since you did, <laughs> um, because when I read Genesis, the opening chapters, um, God says that in the day that you sin, in the day that you eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of uh, good and evil, you will die. So first of all, if he doesn't say in the day that you eat it, I'm going to kill you. He says you will right. die. And right. then whenever they do do it afterwards, he says uh, to whoever he's talking to, we need to kick them out of the garden unless they eat from the tree of life yep. and live forever. And that to me, again, I'm not like a professional exegete of Hebrew. But to me, it sounds like it, he, wants to, he wants to kick them out of the garden because he does not want them to eat from the tree of life, not as a punishment, but because that would somehow not be good for them. Mm -hmm. It would not be mm -hmm. good for them to live forever um, in the state in which they now are. Yes, right. He wants, them to, he wants them to die because that's, a, that's part of the solution. It's a good thing. You Correct. need to die because yeah. you've screwed everything up. <laughs> basically yeah, and, you've, and right. you've torn that you've torn the hole in the fabric of reality and the only way to fix it is first to let it 
go kaput, and then we can <laughs> kind of start over. But you know, yeah. So I think I, I I think I agree with that. Even going back to Genesis, um, if I'm not wrong about that, I usually am. But what are your thoughts? I th I think you're totally right. I actually think Paul picks up on something like that too, um, because he he that kind of enslaved and and, and incarcerated condition that we have as humans cannot continue into this loving fellowship of people with God in perfection that I was just talking about before with God's plan. That stuff can't make its way into that reality. It needs to be shut down. Um, so that, that stuff has to actually be dealt with before this plan can actually come to fruition. Right. But, um, we still have to eventually exist <laughs> right. to be with God, right? Or that plan fails. We just need to exist in a new and perfected and cleansed form with God, right? Mm -hmm. um, so we still actually have to be real at that point. We The solution ultimately can't just be that termination. Right. Um, it doesn't do much good. I think I said this last time. It doesn't do much good if you've just been dead and, and buried, right? right? You need something else. Right. And this is where the the next part of, of God's solution comes in. So what does God do at this point? God resurrects. Um, we're recreated after death um, so that we, we rise and we live in a new and perfected way that's free from that prior contamination to evil and sin. So we're raised and transformed. Um, and this is, again, a very kind of, it's a very Jewish way of understanding this. A lot of Jews in Paul's day understood that God was going to create a new heavens and a new earth. Um, and this new heavens and new earth would be um, in, in this sort of perfected form. And then people would rise from the dust of death into a new and glorious form. But Paul takes this a step further, right? Because <laughs> he's going to talk about Jesus as the one who does this for us. Um, so God actually shows up in Jesus, shoulders all of this bad and contaminated fleshly condition, terminates it, and then is resurrected beyond that into a new reality where he is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And then so we too, as we participate in him and as we're engrafted into him through the spirit, we also die and then are raised into this new reality. Um, so that that new reality that we're raised into is the fulfillment and perfection of God's plan. And this brings us back to the original plan, right? So yeah. now we're able to participate in this reality that's been established from before the foundation of the world. It's a so, wonderful plan. <laughs> yeah, now it all comes back full circle, like you said. Um, I want to zero in on Jesus's death. So sure. I see uh, his resurrection as being the down payment or guarantor that we too will be resurrected and that by uniting to him, I would, I would say, I don't know what, how you would want to word it, uh, but by uniting to him in faith, we too will be resurrected, sure. uh, that sort of thing. Um, but is his death, uh, so you mentioned he put on fleshly, a fleshly body that's uh yeah it's not uh, just some his sort body of yeah 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 it's not the sort of other humanity it's actually our humanity that jesus okay yeah, yeah. so that's what i was going to ask us yeah. so does he just put on a human body and as such is kind of uh, an example or something like that 
and of putting the body to death and then rising from the dead? Um, or is, is he, he's somehow, in a real sense, putting our flesh on, our sinfulness on? Yes. Okay. Yes. Explain That's that. exactly what... Um, so Paul talks about Christ died, therefore all have died. So he has this sense in which Jesus' fleshly condition that he's assumed in the incarnation is somehow universal in scope. He's actually yeah. shouldering all of humanity's stuff in the incarnation and carries that and, bear, and bears that on the cross. And so um, when he dies, I think all of humanity dies as well. And, does that make I sense? Mean, no, I mean, it does. Uh, the concept makes sense. The, the way mm -hmm. in which it comes about is confusing to me. Uh, I don't see how somebody could, because the way I'm thinking of it is how does an individual human put on human nature? You know what I mean? Like, I'm in yes, I don't know. I'm, in, I'm, yeah, <laughs> no, that's fine. But that's just what I'm thinking. Yeah. The way, the way I'm yeah. thinking is, uh, yeah. I am one single instantiation of human nature. You're another one. Um, yeah. I'm not human nature itself. Um, Correct. Neither yeah. are you. Otherwise, there would be no other humans. <laughs> I would just be me. I'm human nature. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm wondering how it's even like logically possible that uh, Christ sure. could put on human nature and put it to death. Um, well, does does if Adam? I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about that. Sure. About does, it Adam, or not. does Adam and Adam sin and what Adam does affect all of humanity? Right. It, yeah, it affects it. Yeah, but I wouldn't say that Adam was human nature. You know what I mean? No. Yeah, Adam's not human nature, but there's something about a, that particular human being that has this sort of universal effect. And I think okay. when Jesus right. shows up, um, theologians will often talk about Jesus as the true human being. Right. He is the right. human one. Um, and I think in that sense we can see Christ as sort of, um, I wouldn't want to talk about him as just the sort of representative of human humanity or something like that. He is the true human being. And somehow, miraculously, <laughs> when he arrives, um, what he's doing is shouldering everything yeah. that we're involved with. Um, I don't know. I think I am more inclined to think of it hmm, perhaps representationally. Uh, was there a reason that you are opposed to it? I don't know. It, 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 I'm not in principle opposed to that idea. Um, I think the way that it gets used by certain theologians, the way that they take it ends up going in a kind of different direction than I, than I would want to go. But yeah. sure, I'm happy with that as a kind of placeholder, I guess. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, there's definitely some sense, and I think we both agree, there's some sense in which Adam screws everything up, uh, and Jesus undoes or fixes what Adam screwed up. Yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah, whether he's yeah. literally, literally, metaphysically taking on uh, all of humanity or all of uh, fallen human nature or however you want to word that, um, or not, or if he's some kind of a representation, or if it's more about the yeah. act that he did, or I don't, I'm not sure. Maybe, and perhaps it's clarifying to me, is that, <laughs> I'm just going to get in all sorts of trouble, but it's really the resurrection for me. It's less about 
the death. It's less about the death. I mean, it's almost like, and this is where I say I'm going to get in trouble, is the resurrection to me is what undoes death. Like, he defeated death. I can see how that literally takes place. If you rise from the dead, you've defeated death. You have. You've put death to death. You you did it. Right. You made it. Here's the trophy. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> right. Um, but a necessary condition of rising from the dead is, well, first you have to die. But then the Bible, yeah. like you said, does speak of... Uh, he bore our sins. He, uh, in some sense, he, yep. by, by his wounds, we've been healed. Um, when Christ died, we died. Like you were talking about Paul. Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. So there's, there's something going on with the death. Uh, but it's, it, it's more evasive to me, at least in my thinking than the resurrection. That, yeah. Like the resurrection, I'm, sure. I'm just like, yeah, that makes sense. I got it. It's a bit more kind of obvious that that is kind of, really the because it is the the uh fulfillment of that solution that's where everything sort of climaxes right resurrection that's where everything evolved um and also the ascension and glorification of that but um yeah i don't know i don't really know how much what else i can say about the death no, being something no, that's yeah. affecting everyone, other than that it does <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no. I'm not saying that you're yeah. wrong. You're certainly correct that that's what the Bible yeah. teaches. I'm just trying to uh, conceptualize it, I suppose. Sure. And, uh, yeah. I'm, yeah. Definitely. Anyway, uh, was there anything else you wanted to say about uh, the solution we were talking about? Um, I think that the the idea that Christ assumes fallen humanity dies and is raised is really the heart of Paul's gospel. Um, this is the theological breakthrough that Paul has that affects everything for him. This is the heart of his gospel. So I would just want to say that that account of the solution that I've just given really is where everything else kind of turns around that. This this is the heart of everything for Paul. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's basically how I would talk about the solution. Yeah. Okay. Um, where do you and want I to hope that's fairly. Yeah. You want to go <laughs> into the, the, uh, different types of atonement theory. I think that might be a good segue is to talk, uh, since we we're just kind of talking about problem solution, how does Jesus fix it and stuff? We're basically talking about atonement theories already. So, uh, maybe you could, uh, describe what we mean by an atonement theory in, just what what an atonement theory is, and then what sure. the different types are, and uh, which which one or which ones uh, that you subscribe to. Yeah, so the atonement is really referring to just how God deals with that problem specifically, and what um, I don't know if I would use the language of mechanism or not, but um, for a lot of these theories, there is a kind of mechanism sort of at the heart of it um but i would just say generally this how does god actually deal with this problem um and there have been various accounts of of the atonement throughout christian history um so i'm not going to talk about all of them i'm going to talk about four of them that are kind of the most dominant um in christian history and the first one is uh, ransom theory of atonement and this is basically the oldest account of atonement that we have. So this is coming out of the, really the third and fourth centuries of the church. Um, and it kind of developed out of this, uh, basically a kind of a dualistic 
understanding of reality, but you have God on kind of one side of things. Satan is kind of on the other. There really isn't a kind of gray area between them. So this kind of dualism tends to structure everything for this account. Um, so yeah, the, the initial emergence of this of this account of the atonement came out of this kind of context of, of dualism to kind of use that loosely. I know that there are lots of t- different kinds of dualism, um, but just for the sake of summary. Um, so the, the model of atonement, I'm gonna use the language of model kind of from now on, this model of atonement, because yeah. I think they, they do sort of have a discrete model that we can identify, right? Um, it works like this. Uh, because of the fall, humans are held captive by Satan specifically. So there is a kind of captivity there. Um, and also the kind of powers of sin that I was talking about. Um, and on this model, humans are basically under the authority of Satan. Um, they're in bondage to him. And they're in a kind of slavery to Satan specifically. Um, so to respond to this, Christ takes the form of a frail human being and is delivered over to the hands of Satan by the Father um, as a payment to release human beings from this enslavement. Um, and this, this payment is specifically the death of Jesus on the cross, which it's essentially for the purposes of, of like buying off Satan, um, which is really interesting. Um, but this happens without Satan actually recognizing that he's kind of been off more than he can chew in accepting this this deal. Um, Satan is kind of deceived by the outward appearance of Jesus as a kind of frail human being, accepts the payment, and as a result, Satan is defeated by Christ in his death because Jesus turns out to be God. So it's kind of like a Trojan horse situation where Jesus kind of sneaks in, deceives Satan, um, and takes everybody out of that um, imprisonment. Yeah. Uh, so this so, is kind of a fun. Like, yeah, yeah. good. So first of all, you have God paying a ransom to Satan, um, as if he ne- needs to do that. And secondly, you have a Trojan horse. Yeah, on this model. Uh, but, but um, I mean, the Gospels, I think, would make it clear that Satan knows who Jesus is. I mean, the demons know who he is. Yeah. So yeah. I mean that would that would be a big flaw in the Trojan yeah. horse part. Sure. Uh, what, what do you think of this model? Um, I like the liberational stuff in this model. I like the idea of sin as being this kind of power. As I've, I talked about that in a slightly different way. Um, I like the idea of Jesus kind of initiating a, a jailbreak of sorts. I think that's kind of cool. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think the the deception point, while it's interesting and kind of thought provoking, I I don't really know if that's really what's going on yeah. there. Um, I agree with you that I I mean, is this your the, nice the, way of saying it's not true? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so back to your point about uh, as if God needed to do this. With in terms of de- deceiving Satan, on this model, there, there's a sense in which Satan actually needs to be deceived in order for this to work, because fallen humanity 
is under the realm of Satan. And apparently Satan has kind of a right to dominion over people. Um, so if we take that into account, Satan really kind of has his own realm of operation that he's been get, somehow given or has, um, then it makes a bit more sense. I'm not saying that that's true because I don't think it is, but um, that's kind of how it works. And then yeah. people are freed from that by by Jesus. So that that's basically what um, what uh, ransom theory is. Yeah, it's kind of God beating Satan at his own game, right? He's the great deceiver, but lo and behold, right. God God's a little out. bit more clever. God's the better deceiver. Yeah, right. The ultimate deceiver. God. Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. There's something. Title I want to give to God. But... But, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, what are some uh, other models? Yeah. So, uh, the next one that I would want to talk about, and this sort of picks up on the payment idea, um, would be penal substitution um, or PSA, as I'm going to call it, because I don't want to say the whole thing um, <laughs> a bunch of times. So, we'll just call it PSA. Um, so this model essentially started to take shape in the Western theological tradition, kind of beginning with Anselm of Canterbury in the 11th century. Um, now Anselm kind of what gets tacked onto him is a specific theory called satisfaction theory. Um, I'm not going to talk about that in full, but the idea is that Jesus is a payment that basically satisfies God's wrath. Um, and Anselm didn't really give a sort of full-blown account of the atonement, really at all. He has that idea of, of payment in, involved in his, his theology, but in terms of a discrete model, he didn't really have one. Um, but in terms of the development of penal substitute, PSA, I'm just going to say that, PSA in particular, it wasn't really until the Reformation, especially with people like Luther and Melanchthon and John Calvin, um, that we begin to kind of see this model take shape in some way. And then really it starts to solidify as something we can identify as a model in really the sort of 17th through 20th centuries, um, especially I think with the rise of fundamentalism in America. Um, and this the specific theory that ends up being called PSA I think really comes from, I don't know if you know who Charles Hodge is. He's a Princeton theologian. Yeah. Um, he talked about this model as uh, forensic penal satisfaction, which is even a worse title than institution. <laughs> um, and sort of from that point on, it, it became really the dominant model of, of atonement within evangelical, evangelicalism. And it, I think it still is today. Um, I think it is probably the dominant model that we have. Um, so what does it actually say? Um, it begins with an account of God the Father as holy and just in a retributive sense. So, and by that I mean that when it, some sort of infraction happens, God responds in terms of punishment to that. Um and this account of God as holy and just is um, basically within the very fabric of the cosmos, okay? So then human beings sin by failing to obey God. And since all people have sinned, God the Father 
kind of turns his retributive wrath toward humanity by sinning. So humans are kind of the target of God's wrath at that point. Um, and then Jesus shows up um, and mercifully and lovingly bears the punishment that human beings actually deserve. So he shows up and kind of enters in and, and substitutes for them. And so he's punished on the cross and it, it, he gets killed, right? And at this point, there's kind of an exchange that happens. Some people call this the great exchange. Um, the father's wrath is redirected toward the son instead of humanity, right? So that the, the son, who is Jesus, is actually guilty of our sins. And so he gets the punishment that we deserve. We hear this talked about a lot, right? Jesus died and endured what we, we deserved, right? Um, the other part of the exchange is that, that Christ's righteousness is redirected and offered to human beings. And humans can only really kind of access this if they have faith in God or Jesus. Um, and when they do that, all of the good stuff that Christ has is redirected toward them. So Jesus gets what we deserve. We, provided we have faith, get what Jesus has. So that's basically how the, the model works. Yeah. Let me switch over here real quick. There we go. God, God does punish sinners. Would you agree with that? Let you take a swig there real quick. Uh, no. I think God punishes sin, specifically. I think that's the target of of God's um, God's wrath. Um, okay, I, I'm just thinking like okay, no, I see I see what you're saying. I understand. That's good. Um, yeah. But I, I'm just thinking like okay, in the Old Testament, uh, you know, when the Israelites screw up. They, they fail sure. to do what they're supposed to do. They commit idolatry. Uh, you know, here come the Assyrians, here come the Babylonians or whoever. I'm not an Old Testament expert. And they wipe them out. And God mm -hmm. sent them to do that. That's, so, I don't, like, that's not punishment or? <laughs> I mean, there are lots of stories that seem to suggest that. If we're thinking about, um, I don't know if this is just if this is a discussion about Paul <laughs> specifically. Right, um, right. I don't okay. Think yeah. No, no. You're good. You're right. No, I'm off topic. So That's I right. agree with you that there are certain um, stories that seem to suggest that. Sure. Yeah. I'm perfectly happy with that. Yeah. Let, let's talk about um, what problem do you see with Jesus dying in our place in this sense? Um, I think you would agree with some kind of substitution. But not yeah, yeah. Uh, in in the penal sense, like uh, yeah. like he was punished. He took our punishment. Or um, yeah, let's talk about kind of why you would reject that. Um, yeah, there are a couple reasons. I think um, one of them has to do with the biblical data in Paul specifically. Um, you have the language of Christ dying for sins, right? And I think you have that in the, the Petrine letters as well. And you also have Jesus redeeming people from the curse of the Torah or the law. I, I think 
there are two main texts that people appeal to to kind of defend uh, this position. And I, the, the two that seem to be very dominant are 2 Corinthians 5.21, which is um, Jesus becoming sin. He, he didn't know sin, but became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then Romans 3.25 to 26 is the other one that people kind of go to. Jesus being offered up as a um, sacrifice of atonement by his blood. Um, in the first text from 2 Corinthians, Christ becoming sin, um, there's no indication that there's a punishment there <laughs> that's right. even happening at text at all. Um, it seems to be that what's being read into that is a prior commitment to something like penal substitution mm -hmm. or the idea that Jesus' death is a punishment for sin. And then away we go. The model's there. That's what the text means, right? Yeah. Um, but it seems to actually kind of cohere with what I was saying about Jesus assuming our sinful condition um, and dying. Therefore, we become like Jesus, who is the righteousness of God. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, I was going to say it seems to fit well with what you were saying earlier as well. So it's kind of right. like a, yeah. this isn't going to solve it. So. No, it doesn't. So the other one, and I think this is the main one that people appeal to, is Romans three twenty-five to twenty-six. So the word there that's used is hilasterion in the Greek. Um, God put forward Jesus as a hilasterion by His blood. So PSA advocates translate this word as propitiation, mm -hmm. which is an option. It really is. Um, and so, what does the and term there, propitiation mean? Uh, basically, it's satisfying some kind of prior um, uh, desire. Yeah. yeah. Um, in this case, it would be punishment. Yeah. Um, and really, the, 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 that account of the atonement that they um, advance is dependent upon that word meaning that, <laughs> if they're right. appealing to it, right? Um, the problem is that word shows up twice in the New Testament. Um <laughs> Here and in Hebrews, and is in Hebrews it's translated as mercy seat. Um, it's not translated as propitiation there. Um, ob again, it is a possibility that it is propitiation. Um, but I don't think we have warrant from within the, the context of that text to suggest that it, it must mean propitiation there. Um, because it's vague and we don't have enough data <laughs> to really give a clear account of what this word means. So I would opt for a sort of general definition of this in terms of sacrifice of atonement or something like that, which is, I think that's in like the NRSV. Um, but I, I really want to emphasize this because I think it's really important for the purposes of exegeting texts. We don't know what hilasterion means precisely. So if anyone comes away from the text of Romans 3, 25 to 26 and says, this is what it definitely means here, they're not telling the truth because <laughs> we don't know. Um, yeah. It seems obvious to people who already hold to this account of the atonement that it, it must mean propitiation, right? Because they've already committed to that. Yeah. No, it's, yeah, I, I see a lot of loading up words uh, yeah. whenever it comes to this sort of stuff, but yeah. I think it's it's even more of a possible translation if um, 
if it's sort of dependent upon what what's going on in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and the theology kind of being advanced there, um, where there does seem to be a kind of punishment enacted against sinners, right? So, uh, way, yo, oh, sorry, so if, if, you had more, if you have more to say, please yeah, do, sorry. If push is coming from that text into the data of Romans 1, or Romans 3, sure, it it makes it even more likely that it's propitiation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you'd have to make a case for that. You'd have to right. make that argument, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way that I've been, well, let's actually stay with the PSA since I have a problem of getting off track. But I mean, it's not completely off track. There's always a thread that runs there somehow. And that's where my brain always go. Always goes, but I need to stay on track. Um, one of the things with the penal substitutionary theory that I find uh, not that great, and actually they don't always state it this way, um, but it usually is, is that this was the only way. This was the only way sure. that God could forgive us. Yeah. And I, th- sorry. Uh, you don't have to say that. Some people don't say, no, he didn't have to. This is just the way he did it. And I'm more okay with that. But uh, if you say this is the only way that God could possibly forgive us, I, I mean, I'm sorry. I think God's like a psychopath or something because I can forgive people <laughs> all the time without having to kill somebody else. You know what I mean? Um, right. And this, and I'm you know, kind of new to all of this. I'm learning a lot from you. Uh, it's not something I... But I tend to think of the philosophical and uh, natural theology like we were discussing. So that's what, but uh, yeah, yeah, just (laughs) in our conversations, I've just been thinking, I forgive people all the time and uh, I don't have to kill them or anybody in order to forgive them. So uh, do you think there's something else there? Am I being not generous? Would they say something else besides uh, forgiveness? Is there something I'm missing? Because it seems to be that in order for us to be forgiven of the punish of the of the crime that we've committed, right? Uh, Jesus had to be sacrificed in our place, and uh, I mean, if that uh, is that really what you want to say about God that he uh, he can't forgive <laughs> people without? Right. And this is, uh, and I'm actually obviously not the only person to ever point this out, but I actually get this from. Uh, Athanasius, I don't know how to pronounce words, sorry. Yeah. Uh, his on the incarnation, in which he says, if it was only a matter of punishment or a matter of penalty or something like that, then right. uh, repentance would have been sufficient. Now, I don't know if he's taking that to say he does still believe in retributive justice or not, um, but at at this present moment, I do. But I think that just praying to God and and really having a repentant heart of the sin that you've committed ought to be enough for God to forgive you. You know, like if you came to me and did that, I'd forgive you, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But right. the the reason for the death and resurrection, as Athanasius was saying again, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce words was because of the, the other problem that we've been talking about here. Uh, it, your human humanity's problem isn't just that you've done bad things or whatever. And, and you need to, be forgiven but the problem is that uh like you're saying we live in a in a cosmos which is broken and is bound uh by in slavery to sin and so even if 
So a lot of times Calvinists, I'm rambling, I'm fixing to hand it back over to you, but I just find it funny. A lot of times uh, these uh, Calvinists who believe in inherited guilt uh, will say to me, and I hear this all the time, they'll say, even if you never personally sinned, uh, you would still be guilty of Adam's sin, right? Yeah. Because you, or of your human nature or something like that, uh, which right. I, I find equally apparent or abhorrent. Um, but I would want to say, even if you never personally sinned, you would still live in a broken cosmos in which your your end, your telos, is death. Sure, sure. And, uh, yeah. and the only way that you're going to be saved from that is Christ's resurrection. Yeah. Um, I know you don't agree with that account, and uh, I'll let you just comment on what your thoughts are. No, I, I yeah, I, there was a bit in there that you said about um, why couldn't God just forgive people, right? Yeah. Um, I think this actually gets to my, so what I was talking about with the sort of textual data was one of my problems with penal substitution. Um, I do have more, and what you just said sort of segues into that nicely. I think there are philosophical and theological reasons um, to reject PSA. Um, and one of them has to do with that. So let, let's let's think about the the Trinity for a moment. So God the Father is fundamentally wrathful toward humanity at this point on this model, right? Um, and I, I think this tells us about the being of God at that point. There's no strict separation, I don't think, that you can make theologically between God's being and activity. I think they're one and the same. I think his it's nature just, and his activity? His being, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. So what God does tells us what God is really like. Yeah. Divine simplicity. Yeah. Right so if if God the Father is acting in this kind of way toward humanity, that tells us what God is really like. What happens when Jesus shows up? How does he act? He acts lovingly and mercifully and compassionately to save people from the wrathful Father. How can God act in those two ways, which seem to be irreducibly different ways, and still be the same being? How can the Father and the Son do that coherently together? Couldn't it be the case that the Son, who is acting mercifully and lovingly, why does he ha- why is he even acting in that way? If he is the same being as that Father, why doesn't he just go ahead and destroy all of humanity in accordance with what the father wants to do, right? I mean, hypothetically, he could do that. And I think if we're starting with that account of the father as wrathful, he probably should, but he doesn't. He acts in this merciful, compassionate, loving way. On the flip side of that, if the father is the same being as the son, why doesn't the father just act in a merciful and loving way to save sinners compassionately and forgive them like you were saying Mm -hmm. out of love right um that doesn't make any sense (laughs) to me um i think there is a contradiction there in terms of what how the the father is being presented and also the son if we want to say that they are the same god 
mm-hmm. and they share the same being, right? Um, Another, well, yeah, real quickly, um, how would you distinguish the problem that you just raised? Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not trying to trap you in your own words. I'm just curious oh. uh, from something you said earlier about uh, God doesn't want to punish people. He wants to punish sin. Mm-hmm. Um, so God does have this angst or whatever again in him. You're changing the object by making it against sin as opposed to humanity. But I was out of in my head. It was like the problem you're seeing with uh, God being uh, wrathful towards mm-hmm. humanity and at the same time loving meant- towards humanity. Yeah, right. Um, that, I don't think there's any way to direct your wrath at sin without also directing it at humanity on your model. I'm not sure I'm following. Um, um, so you were saying um, it seems contradictory that um, God would direct his wrath at human beings and then Jesus would come into the picture, also God, and towards the same objects be loving and merciful. Um, but on your account, you were saying that God is wrathful against sin, per se, and mm-hmm. you would ha- then you, you would have Jesus come in and be... Uh, loving and merciful towards human beings. And then I would say, I think those have to reduce back together just like on the PSA account, though. No, I think they work perfectly well. Um, I think because God sends Jesus into that situation, love, and I, I, so this is part of the issue, too, that I I haven't defined what wrath is. Um, Okay. Yeah. wrath is the result of God's love. I think it is a part of God's love. I think it's, I mean, think about parenting, for example. Like, parents get really, really irritated with the things that their kids do a lot of the time. I'm going to learn about this really soon. Yeah, right. But it's a, it's a healthy, ideally, it's a healthy sort of anger that comes from some kind of an affront against that love that you have for your kids. So what Jesus does is the wrath isn't a kind of uh, retributive wrath or anything like that. It's a restorative one. So Jesus enters into that, being sent by the Father, assumes it and dies in order to restore people back to himself. Right? That's a very different thing than saying that God has the sort of wrath that's a punitive wrath or something like that. It may be. I'm fine with talking about. Uh, okay. No, that that's the distinction I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, does that make sense? No, it does. Okay. Um, we just hadn't got that far into the conversation yet, so <laughs> that's yeah, all that yeah. was. Um, yeah. Um, was there anything else you wanted to say about the PSA? PSA. Uh, I could go on and on, but Public um. <laughs> Yeah, what what I'll say in in summary is, so you have those two different gods doing very, sorry, you have those two different persons doing very different things within the Trinity, apparently the same God. The Spirit's not really involved at all in the atonement on this model. And I think that's probably because people who generally buy into PSA have a really hard separation between justification and sanctification. So the Spirit really is involved in that later process 
of sanctification, right? Um, so to push the spirit back into the atonement would risk kind of collapsing justification back into into uh, or, sorry sanctification back into justification. So it, it kind of makes sense why they don't, but it's also kind of weird if God really is involved. If the Trinitarian God is involved in the atonement, why isn't the spirit talked about at all in that? It's just this sort of transaction between the father and the son. Um, and the father and the son are acting in two, what I would say, irreducibly different ways. Um, I think what ends up resulting from that is a kind of tritheism. Hmm. You have three different gods acting in different ways. The spirit ends up acting sort of transformatively later on. The son acting in this kind of compassionate way, and that tells us what the son's being is like. The father acting in this retributive way, that tells us what the father's being is like. So you have these three different beings kind of floating around that don't seem to share the same being at all. So what you've done is actually you've fractured the trinity. Which is a huge problem. <laughs> um and I, I think the resulting problem from that is that Jesus, who I think as Christians is our primary access to what God is really like, he can't tell us anymore what God is really like. He can only disclose his own being, which is this loving and, and compassionate and merciful God. God the Father would be floating about sort of somewhere else, being wrathful um, and and retributive, right? The Spirit's sort of doing the spirit's own thing somewhere else. Um, I think that's a huge problem. I don't know how you can hold together the unity of being in the Trinity and also confess PSA. Gotcha. Uh, I'm sorry if that's harsh to any PSA advocates yeah. who may be listening. No, I mean, I whenever we make these kind of arguments, it should always be assumed that we're talking about this is how we see your position logically yeah. follows, not yeah. this is what you think. Uh, we yeah. know you would reject that, but we think, or John at least thinks that it logically follows. So, yeah, and I, I think I'm, I think I'm kind of right, but <laughs> <laughs> no. If you, I mean, if you thought you were wrong, you wouldn't hold to it. <laughs> right. Yeah, be saying it. Yeah. Um, do you want to say anything else about atonement theories? Um, we're at we're at an hour, and I really can't wait to get to universalism. Um, I think I'm good on that. We can get to the to the good stuff. To the goods. Yeah. Here we go. You might need to take a drink for this one. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so explain to me the common thread that runs between all forms of universalism and then kind of what's just kind of like we just did with the atonement theories. What are some different forms of universalism and uh, which one you hold to? Yeah. Um, so the common thread is that all things will be saved and reconciled back to God. Um, and I, I brought up a couple last time and didn't really kind of get in depth with them. Um, I just kind of quickly summarized um, two of them, um, one of which was my own position. So I'm, I'm going to give three, and I'm going to do this quickly so we can get into <laughs> talking about them more in depth. The first one um, is what I'm going to call originist apocatastasis. <laughs> I know that's long and weird. Um, apocatastasis just really means restoration, right? Um, in originist, I mean, it's it gets tacked on to origins theology. 
um, my buddy Ethan Taylor, who may actually be on the live stream, um, has really helped me identify this in a really brilliant paper that he wrote on on Bart's rejection of a certain kind of epicatastasis. Uh, he's in and, the he's in the live stream for sure. Awesome. And uh, I, I read a comment earlier. I can't remember what the comment was any longer, but it was his comment. So yeah, but go ahead. About handsome, yeah, I'm sure yes, that was that's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> So th this approach, as I said, gets tacked onto origin, and it, it's basically saying that history is kind of progressing toward a certain goal or telos, and in its kind of development of history, and the rational order of things has been set up in this way, so that basically all things are journeying toward this final restoration, and will eventually re reach this kind of rational telos, right? And God is kind of patiently stepping back and waiting for humans to kind of make their way through toward this telos um, through basically kind of good things that they do. Um, eventually, everyone will actually get there. It could take a bit longer for some people, but that's kind of the, the general structure. Um, we're all moving toward this end of history where all things will be um, culminated and God will be all in all. Um but we kind of it's kind of a human centered journey. We make our way on our own toward that. And this isn't a fair encapsulation of origins thinking by any means. Um, but it seems to be what someone like Karl Barth in his church dogmatics is rejecting quite aggressively. Um, so that's one model of universalism. The second one, and I think I brought this up last time, was and I, I didn't give it a name, but I would call it like plural pluralistic universalism. This is also a kind of human-centered journey where each religion is a kind of pathway to God. You can kind of choose your own religion and they kind of send you up the mountain toward God. It's kind of like a choose-your-own-adventure situation, right? You can kind of choose your player and ultimately you get to the final boss <laughs> and right. hopefully win. Um but that's kind of how that one works, right? Uh, um, the l third one is what I would call hopeful universalism. Um, and this approach is quite popular in theology. Um, and it's basically saying that the biblical data that we have um, in the different texts that we see are saying different things. So we have sort of destruction over here. We have torment over here we have universalism over here um and because of this spread of texts that seem to be saying different things in the bible we can't confidently say that god is going to save everybody um so we have to be kind of agnostic about it we can say i don't know the bible seems to be saying different things but i hope that god is going to restore everything and everyone's going to be saved um so it's it it's kind of a, a respectful I don't know, mm, right? Yeah, it's a. Uh, I want my cake and eat it too. Yeah. Yeah, and no, it, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it's not. No. I, I think it is, but <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, I, is but, this the position you hold to, or was the first one? No. So the, the, I've got another one. I think I said oh, three, okay. but I mean, um, so uh, the reason why hopeful universalist people kind of commit to this is because they don't want to impinge upon God's freedom in this and they don't want to impinge upon human freedom either 
Um, so it's kind of res- respect of those two things and then also the Bible. Um, so it's kind of a, an agnostic position. The last one is what I called last Christological universalism. And that's basically just saying that the gospel that I gave about God's unconditional commitment to humanity in Jesus um, to bring people into fellowship with, with God from before the foundation of the world um, is going to come to fruition in a way that doesn't leave people outside of that. And this hap- this happens in Christ. We see this revealed in him. Um, so even if there is some kind of like stealth attack from sin um, that happens, God defeats that. And God ultimately is all in all. Um, the point is that that we understand that account of revelation in Jesus Christ specifically. We see that account in his being. Um, so that's a quick summary of that. But I've mm-hmm. already said this elsewhere. So, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, maybe I'm – oh, sorry. i got to switch the screen over. I always forget that i got to throw myself back up there. Uh, well, maybe I'm a hopeful universalist then. I don't know. But uh, my, one of the questions I sent you was – if um, if all will be saved, uh, what do you do with places in the Bible like you are like you already mentioned, where it sure seems like um, God is going to destroy the wicked or unbelievers? Um, and I sent you some some verses from Paul just so that you would have something concrete to work with. Um, not trying to throw out proof text or anything like that, but just like so that you would have something concrete to work with. Um, I can't remember what they were, so if you want to read them and then discuss them, please, by all means. So the two texts that we had kind of talked about a bit were Philippians 3, 18 to 19, and then 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Um, So I want to say kind of openly as a matter of hermeneutical clarification that I am going to prioritize universalist texts hermeneutically um and push those yeah yeah and push those into my interpretation yeah Mm -hmm. no i was Um, gonna just point out that everyone's gonna do this because exactly these these verses uh, i was thinking this whenever you sent me uh verses that you think uh support universalism and wanted surprise we're gonna do the reverse here in like five seconds uh (laughs) probably won't be five seconds but uh and i was thinking both these verses seem so clear to me that you have to prioritize one over the other. And I don't know how to make that call, but, uh, yeah, anyway, so I was just pointing out that I had already thought about this and thought I have, in in order for me to understand this as not a universalist text, I have to prioritize the other. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. Exactly right. And so everybody does this, people who are, um, Annihilationists will prioritize destruction texts and push those into other ones. People who are ECT folks will push what they see to be eternal conscious torment into destruction texts. <laughs> yes, I no, saw they that. have an actual uh, exegetical. They have an actual actual exegetical problem. I think I that think, the annihilationists I, and the universalists no. have yeah. a leg to stand on. <laughs> I think possibly. Annihilationists have an exegetical problem too, and I'm, that's what I'm going to talk about here. Well, yeah. <laughs> so I was just making the uh, the hermeneutical sort of yeah. clarification. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. Just in terms of where I'm, where I'm coming from, and I, I want to be honest about that, right? Um, 
So let's go to Philippians 3, 18 to 19. Um, leaning on contingency, and I, I by that I just mean the circumstances surrounding the letter, is going to be crucial. And I think it's crucial for reading any of Paul's texts. It tends to get overlooked because we think Paul is a systematic theologian first and foremost, but he's just writing letters to people. Um, so Paul is referring here to false teachers or opponents specifically in this text who are causing problems, who he will talk about as enemies of the cross, right? So he he's not talking about non-Christians in general here. We have no warrant from the text to, to actually suggest that. Um, but even if I grant that, the text basically says their end is ruin. Destruction is actually kind of a bit of a fudge there, translation-wise. And they're got their guts or their belly. What does ruin mean? Is it eternal in the way that we think of as eternal? How do we know? Uh, there's no explicit warrant from the text to really go one way or the other. Um, is that destruction for a certain period of time? Ionios can mean a certain period of time. It doesn't have to mean eternal in the way that we talk about it. Um, is it is it eternal? Pos I don't know. Um, I don't think you do either. <laughs> well, I was just going to add, and I was just going to get your thoughts on this. Uh, it's less about the word uh, destruction or ruin and more about the, the telos or the end. And so the end is the end is destruction or ruin. Um, some interpreters that I, were, I was reading were saying that they took this to mean there couldn't be anything else after the ruin because the ruin is the end. There's nothing after the end. The end is the end. And so the ruin is the end. <laughs> Does that make yeah. sense? Sure. I mean, again, what, do we know what Paul is referring to when he's talking about end there? I don't, I mean, it could be the end of a certain time period. I don't know. Um, I really don't know. So no, I think it's, it's ambiguous. I think it okay. is ambiguous. Um, but, and this is where my hermeneutics is going to come into play, pressure coming from Christology for me, um, a single text stripped of its context isn't going to problematize my commitment to universalism. Once we look at the context and also look at the words that are being used and how ambiguous they are, um, it, I don't know really what it's, it's saying. Um, I would want to push through my account of universalism um, into that. So if that's clear... We can talk about Second Thessalonians one nine. Yeah, sure. Um, and I'm going to give a similar answer, although it's it's going to be a bit different. Um, contextually, Paul is addressing issues of people who are causing problems for his community. Um, he's really, really worked up about that. <laughs> he's basically saying, "Don't worry, God is going to give them what they deserve." Right? <laughs> but right. these people who are bugging you and and scaring you, really. Um, but even even in this text, he's not talking about unbelievers in general <laughs> in any right. clear way. He's talking about these problem people. Um, and when we look at the Greek text, what's often translated as eternal destruction here isn't really clear. Destruction could be, mean something like ruin, eternal, 
Ionios could mean a lot of other things besides eternal in the way that we talk about it. Um, uh, I think the word that's used for destruction there, so Alethron, could also mean something like just reparations. And this is how David Bentley Hart translates it in his uh, translation of the, the New Testament. Um, so it could mean that, and Ionios, like I said, could mean a whole bunch of other things. It means that in a lot of, it can mean uh, a set age of just reparations, a set age that has an end. It could mean that. Um, so let's say we read this text and translate it as, um, who will pay the just reparations? So who, meaning God, who will pay the just reparations of ruin in the age coming from the face of the Lord? It actually doesn't have to mean from, we're separated from the glory of the Lord. It could mean coming from the Lord. Um, then we're no longer talking about eternal destruction but actually a kind of set age where these just reparations are actually being handed out to people that will come to an end. Um, so again, I would opt for where I'm coming from hermeneutically and then kind of say, but this is kind of ambiguous. So, um, yeah. um, do you want me to address the verses you sent or do you want to move on to something sure, else? Go for it. Um, oh God, I thought you were going to give me a cop out, but okay. No, no, I'm not gonna let you off easy. <laughs> um, let's see. So, some some verse that John wanted to see how I understood as um, someone who's well, in some sense agnostic, but leaning more towards something like annihilationist viewpoint, but uh, mostly because of uh, the passages John just mentioned and others outside of Paul, but those were some from within Paul that I thought. Um, would support that view. Uh, let me actually pull up the passages so I can read them. So the first one is Romans 5, verses 18 through 19, which I specifically I said that he shouldn't send me. He did it anyway. Um, <laughs> it says, Consequently, therefore, as through one trespass came condemnation to all people, so also through uh, one righteous deed came justification of life to all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. And let's see. So just like you were saying, I'm going to interpret everything through the holistic picture that I have of Paul in my mind already, which includes uh, me taking a different interpretation of those other verses that you just address such that destruction, eternal destruction, is part of Paul's uh, theology, worldview, however you want to say that. And so I have to take that into account. So if Paul were to say something that taught a universalist position, I would either have to say, one, Paul's contradicting himself, uh, which is on the table. Um, and, right. Or universalism is correct, or this isn't actually teaching universalism or, you know, there's some different options there, but there's a huge conflict. So I have to do something, uh, that is in some sense creative. <laughs> and I'm fine saying that because like you said, I think everybody has to do that. You have to try to, if you think coherence is possible, um, then you have to try to do something. And like we were texting earlier and, uh, we both agreed that 
coherence should at least be tried <laughs> before we yeah. it has to be tried in That's one true. direction or the other you know yeah. you're 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 trying to make it cohere um in the opposite direction than perhaps i am again i said like i said i'm i'm kind of agnostic on it because it is um anyway it's tricky but for me um for one thing just some a priori reasons before I actually get into some of the the wording that Paul uses would be there would, it, it seems to me that there wouldn't be much point in writing to the Romans and explaining to them the gospel um, if the end result was everyone's going to be saved in the end um, I mean I guess it's kind of nice to know it but if if that's the end result you don't really need to know anything uh, you don't need to live in a certain way you don't need to change anything in the end, we're all going to be saved anyway. And so I don't see Paul's motivation in even writing to the Romans in the first place. That was just one thought I had. Um, I'm gonna get, I'll give you plenty of time to respond to these if you want, or we can move on. It's up to you. Um, secondly, um, and this is getting outside of Paul, so I'm sorry if I'm cheating, but I can't help myself sometimes. But he is talking about Jesus, so I think it's okay to quote Jesus, who said that not all would, who, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so I just kind of felt like it would be odd for Paul to... Anyway, but... This gets closer to the actual context, so those are just kind of some a priori reasons in my mind. But uh, Paul just finished teaching in chapter 4, the way I understand him, that just as Abraham was considered righteous because he believed God, so also we too can receive Christ's righteousness through faith. So I know you are probably going to want to dispute that. Um, but as I see it, Paul just made the point that salvation is through, uh, that faith is a condition of salvation. And uh, I don't think that can be true on a universalist viewpoint. Maybe, maybe it can be, and you, you'll want to dispute that too. But anyway, I thought that that might be in conflict if I were to take this passage in Romans 5 as teaching universalism. And so again, I'm just setting up that I can either conclude that Paul contradicted himself, or I can try to make it cohere in one way or the other. Um, so beyond that, I would just say that um, I think in Romans 5, 9 through 10, since I already have it open here in my Logos thing, I might as well read it. He says, Therefore, by much more, because we have been declared righteous now by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, by much more, having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And so I think he's talking about, um, or talking to people who are he already considers reconciled. And then he's saying, we will also, much more will we be saved by his life um, from that wrath that he's talking about in verse 9. Um, again, you're going to understand wrath differently, and so I'm interested to hear all this, but um, I'm just pointing out kind of how I'm thinking of it. Um, and then I would also point to uh, verses uh, 15 and 17, where he, he seems to be uh, continuing the conditional in salvation, which is, for if by the trespass of the one man, oh, sorry, um, reading the wrong thing there, he says, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if by the trespass of the one the many died, by much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many. And the gift is not as through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, judgment 
from the one's sin led to condemnation, but the gift from many trespasses led to justification. For if, I suppose all I really needed to read was this verse, sorry. <laughs> For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in, in life through the one Jesus Christ. So I guess like many people have probably pointed out on this verse before, I'm more inclined to see that as a conditional, uh, that you have to receive it. And on the same uh, track there, I would say Paul speaks of this righteousness that we receive as a gift. He, he uses that word gift uh, multiple times throughout this whole passage. And uh, maybe I'm loading it up. I'm not as familiar with the Greek as you are. But one way, one thing I would say is it's not a gift if you don't, I mean, you have to, in some sense, have a choice here. Like, you could reject a, a gift. Like, I, I'm not giving you a gift if I'm actually forcing it upon you. Um, and so I'm understanding universalism as you don't really have much of a choice. You're going to, you you will be saved, you know, one way or another. Um, and whereas I'm seeing this as a gift, which w would need reception, which I think fits with what Paul says elsewhere, including chapter 4. And so I'm understanding the backdrop to verses 18 and 19 in that <clears throat> sense. And then we get to 18 and 19. And again, he says, uh, as condemnation came to all people, so also one righteous deed came justification of life to all people. And so perhaps it comes down to what do uh, we make of... It doesn't even have to be what do we make of all people, but it could be. He certainly means the word all. I'm not saying that, but I think he could possibly mean all in Christ, all who are in Christ. And just as all in Adam will die, so all in Christ will have justification of life. And so I don't think necessarily he's even addressing the question of how do we become in Christ here. Um, first of all, he doesn't actually use the word in Christ here. I'm, I'm adding that in. I, I freely admit that. I'm just saying I think... Conceptually, he might mean that uh, because of my prior commitments. Again, I'm fully aware of that. Admit it. So if he does mean all in Christ, then I don't think he's actually addressing the question of how this is going to happen. He's really just saying how he views the cosmos in general. There's those who are in Adam. There's those who are in Christ. And that could be a possibility. Um, there's also the possibility of the... Uh, verses I pointed out prior in chapter f uh, 5 about how he's actually uh, talking about escaping that wrath from back in, in verses 9. And so that would kind of change things up too. Um, I've gone on for a while here, but basically I'll just sum it up and say, I think one way of stating what Paul is saying is that all those in Adam will die, all those in Christ will live eternally. Um, and that perhaps he's not necessarily saying how this happens but he does elsewhere, which is through faith. You get in Christ through faith is what I would say. But um, there you go. That was my best shot, John. I, I did what I could. <laughs> nice. Um, do, you want do we want to? Yeah, if you want to respond. This is, I'll make it me, this I, is actually I, supposed to be me interviewing you, but since you threw those, yeah. you didn't throw those on me. But since you gave me those, I yeah. thought you'd, yeah. you as I the interviewee definitely should get to respond. Um, I'm trying to figure out where to start. I don't want to take up too much time. Uh, any other questions? The chat? I don't know. Um, okay. So you mentioned the idea of why, why it's 
rightly everyone's going to be saved. I think you made made that point, just sort of, I guess theologically. Kind of a one off, yeah. Um, I don't know how it follows from everyone being saved that there's no reason to act rightly. Um, I've heard this a lot, and I don't. Well, really I did understand. mention I did mention the why act rightly, um, and I can see how yeah that doesn't necessarily follow and it's not something i want to be committed to but what i was primarily concerned with was uh why is paul writing the romans about the gospel as if it's something they need to know uh, well he's never met them yeah. he hasn't met them um they don't know him really um and i i think in terms of contingency paul is actually addressing probably different than what you would maybe buy and this would get into a whole different conversation about Romans 1 to 3. But I, th- I think that the reason why I'm writing the letter is to, one, address certain opponents who were about to show up. And related to that, give the Roman Christian an assurance that they are, in fact, involved with God in Christ. That nothing can separate them from the love of God in Christ. Um when there's these other sort of teachers or opponents who are coming around and teaching something very different. So he, he's wanting to give them this really good stuff about the gospel because they're going to be threatened by another gospel that shows up. Um, in the last chapter of Romans, Paul talks about be on the lookout for these other people. Hmm. What's, I guess my question is, what's the threat? What's the threat? Yeah, you, uh, like you're saying, uh, of these other gospels. It's insecurity. Uh, what's the threat I'm sorry. Yeah, it's insecurity about their status oh, okay. as okay. saved in so Christ. So it's not if you go astray and follow other gospels, you're, you know, you're in, in serious Screwed. trouble. It's just that you're yeah. gonna, you're in, in, okay. Yeah, it's 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 Romans is really a lot of Romans and especially five through eight is about assurance, um, and I think that's why Paul wrote it was to give the Roman Christians who he hadn't met yet an assurance that they are on track for glory. Yeah. Um, no, that makes sense. Yeah. So the push coming from Romans 4 in your interpretation, um, where you have Abraham getting uh, saved by faith or, yeah. I don't know. I would... I would really opt for a different reading of Abraham in Romans 4. Abraham's faith does not waver in Romans 4, right? Or yep. we expected to have that kind of faith as Christians. A faith that does not waver. Uh... Or, or is Paul doing something else with Abraham in a more Christological way, which he does elsewhere, in terms of Jesus's faithfulness as being the saving thing is there's some kind of Christological thing going on in Romans four that would make more sense of that kind of really, really secure faith that's going on there. Okay. Um, So are you saying the analogy is actually not between Abraham and us, but between Abraham and Christ? Yeah, I would say that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, which of course affects us in some way. I, I would actually think that Paul is thinking about Abraham in terms of Christ because I, I think that's how he thinks about faith most of the time. Um, yeah. Uh, 
so if yeah so the romans 4 stuff that's a whole different discussion about faith and about abraham and all of that um how does this argument in this in the text we're talking about how does this work if all people are affected by sin through adam through Adam's trespass, everybody, without exception. And then Paul uses the same word in parallel, and even more so, talking about Jesus's solution to that. Why would anyone be outside of that? If everybody is, in fact, affected by Adam, how can we qualify the latter in any way? Mm-hmm. No, yeah. Like I was saying whenever I was reading through it was, uh, what's the right word here? Semantically or whatever, or because of the parallelism and because of the word all. Uh, yeah, there's on that level, there's just there's nothing you can't do. Your hands are tied. Um, but if if you think that elsewhere Paul contradicts this, you have to do something. Uh, or, I mean, yeah. I guess you don't. You could say it's contradictory. But so I'm not saying that, yeah, but I agree that the parallel works such that um, on that so level, this, yeah, what's so true this, of one side right? has to be true of the other side. And I've actually seen people point this out and then go on to say that uh, uh, unconditionally you receive the first, but conditionally you conclude the second. Uh, and not even realize that they just broke their own rule. Um, right. I'm doing the same thing, but I'm pointing out that, yeah, you. Um, it, it's not because it actually works in that verse. It's because of yeah. prior commitments that we see in Paul. And I'm just being yeah. honest, whereas I think... No, no, no. That makes sense. I'm, I'm not sure which... You mentioned a couple of texts that could be conditional. So Romans 4. Um, I'm not sure that there's decisive evidence there or elsewhere where paul talks about sin conditionally or uh faith conditionally um what do you think of 17 517 by the way i I really say all this not because i'm so uh committed to anything i just really like hearing your answers to things oh yeah i know you already know that but uh by one man's or one's transgressions death reigned through one so much more will those receiving grace's abundance uh paul's not using faith language there he's just saying that you receive it um i might hold on i need to get over to romans 5 i'm still in four yeah uh so those who receive what do you make of that those receiving yeah um is there not some kind of uh reception in the way i'm thinking of it I think Paul could have easily talked about those receiving through faith. Grace comes to them, but he doesn't say that. He's just talking about them receiving it. I think it's a—it's just the fact that they're receiving it. Okay. Um, so it's a fact if I uh, yeah. push something into your arms, you received it. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, Grace confronts you and you receive it. And I think Paul, when Paul talks about human faith a lot of the time, um, so receiving here... We, we don't need to read this as appropriation of something else. I think it's just a sort of response to it, to something that's confronting to, confronting you. And I think Paul will talk about faith as a response to 
grace. Um, I think he's just saying here that it's a fact that those receiving grace, grace's abundance, will get this good stuff in Christ. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that that's conditional. Um, okay. It could be, but I'm, yeah. Um, he could have been a little clearer if he meant that specifically. <laughs> yeah, he could have been a lot more clear. Of course, he wasn't writing to us for these. <laughs> right. right. Um, so, yeah, I, I worry about reading in conditionality into this because I don't think we have much warrant outside of this to even read faith conditionally. Um, I guess we, we would have to have a discussion about that, but, um, I would say that my hermeneutical approach has a spread of texts in Paul that I think is, uh, lends more support, I think, than a conditional reading, because I think you have a huge spread of universalist texts in Paul that are much more than any sort of destructive text. So that, that's part of why I'm planting my flag there. Not just because I like universalism. I just see it as the overwhelming story about God's salvation. No, yeah, so I want to be clear that I, I know that about you. I'm not questioning yeah. uh, motivations or commitments to the text. I'm not – and you, you know that. I, you know I'm not that kind of person. But, that's yeah. more for just watching, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, I don't think I have any other questions about okay. that. Um. I'm actually going to... Do you have anything else on Romans 5 that you wanted to point out? No. Okay. Then I'm actually going to exercise my right as the interviewer and skip the other verse. Just because we're already at an hour and 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But but I think Romans 5 was the harder one. So if that's any consolation. Because I basically see the point and say, yeah, but I don't have a choice. So (laughs) it's not much... Exegetical work going on there for me, um, and we're gonna need to do another episode, I think, because we've got so much more that we can cover. Oh, we're gonna be doing one. as long as you are cool with being friends with me. We'll be doing a lot of different yeah. uh, episodes, so that's why I'm already foreseeing that. Um, <laughs> let's see. Let's move on to to the questions. Yeah. If universalism is true, John came up with these questions, by the way. Um, if universalism is true, uh, does this completely obliterate human freedom and or agency? Yeah. So I'm answering my own question. Right. <laughs> well, you ask so much better questions than I do. Um, the short answer is no, it doesn't. This is just a question that gets asked a lot. Um... But we would need to supply an alternative account of freedom um, than ones that are sort of generally handed to us philosophically. So universalism doesn't actually destroy human freedom, but it does reject certain approaches to freedom, to human freedom. And I think especially sort of modern liberal accounts of freedom in terms of unhindered choice about something. Sometimes hear this talked about in terms of libertarian freedom. Um... I don't know where this is coming from because I don't think it's coming from the gospel. I, th- <laughs> I think this is really handed to us from our modern Western kind of well, uh, um, context. What, how do you understand libertarian freedom? Uh, freedom to choose you said something unhindered or not. Unhindered 
you said unhindered freedom or something like that a second ago. Yeah, it's a freedom. It's a choice that you make without the influence of others to choose something or not. You have the freedom to choose otherwise too. Yeah. Uh huh. Do you think we do have that? No, I'm saying that that's what I think libertarian freedom is okay. doing. Do you think that we have that? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think freedom is choice from a theological perspective. Um, so maybe I can just get into that. Um, well, I think real quickly, just so that I want to understand. Um, mm-hmm. You you chose to come on the podcast tonight as opposed to not. You could maybe. have said no. Possibly, yeah. I, Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I just no, always I'm, get confused I'm, in these conversations about freedom because it's like, it seems to be the most basic fact in the world that I didn't have to put my hand over seems here. Like it, it seems like it because we construe freedom in our, our, our culture and our, our philosophical sort of uh, what's, what's underpinning modernity philosophically is this account of freedom. So when we think about what it means to make choices or do things or whatever, we're always already kind of thinking about that stuff. Um, and I agree. It seems like I had the choice to come here or not. I totally agree. Um, in a basic sense, sure. I I guess I would say that. I'm, th- I'm saying for Christians and when we're thinking about freedom theologically, I don't think we need to go there. I think we okay. have a different account of freedom given in the gospel um and what is that yeah yeah i think when we're looking at jesus this is something that maximus the confessor was on to um when he was thinking about jesus's uh human will in nature and also his divine will in nature he saw in jesus that christ's human will in nature corresponds to his divine will in nature. So from there, we can think about human freedom in terms of correspondence to God's will. It's obedience. It's response. Freedom is in the realm of that response. That's what I would talk about as freedom, human freedom for Christians. Um, it's when we're being obedient to God and responding to what God God's will actually is. So anything outside of that, I would just call unfreedom. Anything oh, that rejects okay. that, bumps up against that, that would be in a different sphere um, than freedom. Freedom is only within the in the sphere of God's activity, in responding to that. Um, okay. So those that's how. Yeah. Basically. But I think this yeah. is, um, and I don't mean it. Uh, you may already realize it but i think for me that it's a an equivocation i think when the way you just use the word freedom that means uh, freedom as opposed to slavery right which is how the bible talks about it yeah well whenever i was talking about libertarian freedom i was talking about as opposed to um determinism and so it seems sure. that the words, I, yeah, I reject. You reject which one? Both of them as adequate theological accounts of freedom. Oh, um, okay, yeah, but that's what I'm saying. But that uh, that uh, qualifier theological freedom. Now I just think we're talking about two completely different things, don't you? 
Um, yeah, but the problem is we could that change the word. Of, we could change the word and stop. Here's using the problem. Sure. Here's the problem, though. That that the libertarian and determinist accounts of freedom that are handed to us philosophically tend to get read into the Bible, and sort of uh, call the shots when we're talking about freedom and agency, especially to do with faith, right? Okay, we think about I see what you mean. This libertarian account of freedom, or in terms of determinism with election, right? Um, especially hard Calvinists do that, but I don't think that's there. I don't. And when we're talking about someone like Paul and when we're talking about theology, I just don't think those other philosophical categories are helpful because they're not what's in the text. Um, Let me see if I can use both in a sentence that summarizes what you're saying, and then you tell me if I'm right or wrong. You cannot, <laughs> you cannot freely choose, libertarian sense, to move yourself into freedom outside the slavery of sin. Right. I understand. Which is why this, this thing with <laughs> with faith being a sort of unhindered, well, not I, I'm going to abandon that language. Faith being something that you choose to do while you're still enslaved doesn't make any sense to me. Because <laughs> you can't build out of it. Um, that seems to be an imposition of modern accounts of freedom into the text. And I don't think yeah. someone like Paul was thinking about that. Yeah. Um, I don't think he was thinking I, in that. A ancient people didn't think in terms of freedom in that way. Um, I think that... Yeah, we can, we can talk about it some other time. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> this for a we'll be time. texting the rest of the night, so that's okay. So <laughs> <laughs> I want to get to the, the other question. We're, we're pushing two hours. Uh, did, did you have anything else that you wanted to say about that? Let's move on. Okay. Uh, if God doesn't punish the wicked, this is, again, another John question asking itself. If God doesn't punish the wicked in the way that we normally think, uh, then what is judgment? What does the word judgment mean for universalists like yourself? So uh, you said that often this is posed in terms of, is Hitler really going to be in heaven? Like, why wasn't he punished? Right. I remember Pine Creek asking that in the live chat, I think, on the last uh, uh, the last interview we did. So that kind of came there. It's just in, uh, people ask that all the time. Um, right. So I would suggest that first and foremost, the cross is the concrete judgment against sin. So that's where we see what judgment is, is like. I think that's um, where we start. Now, in terms of final judgment, and I think this is what a lot of people are referring to when they're talking about someone like Hitler or trying to understand what universalists actually mean by judgment, um, I would kind of go with what someone like Gregory of Nyssa does in his book, The Soul and the Resurrection, um, and elsewhere. It's not just that. Um, which coheres exactly what I'm saying about universal, what I've said about it. The approach is to see kind of two theological horizons in the New Testament. Usually read as kind of like uh, usually opting for one or the other. Um, but he sees the, these as sort of unfolding um, in succession in some way. So one set of images uh, is talking about the sort of furthest limit of the imminent course of history 
and sort of divisions therein between those who have surrendered to God's love already and those who haven't. So that the other set refers to the final horizon of all horizons beyond all ages, where even those who have traveled so far away from God's love in the present end up getting brought back into. So one set of harsh images happens first, and then you have another set of images where everything is sort of going toward. So what happens in that first account, that harsh one, right? I think when Paul is talking in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 5, or 11 through 15, I'm going to quote that. If the work that someone has built endures, that one will receive a reward. But any, if anyone's work should burn away, that one will suffer loss, yet shall be saved, even though as by fire. So this suggests that judgment is something like a refining fire. Something that burns off all of the stuff that gets in the way of living in perfection and fellowship with God. So even somebody like Hitler, which is the issue that tends to get brought up, he's saved. <laughs> but because he's gone through this process of fiery judgment, which means his flesh has been burned off, all of the stuff that's colluded with evil in his life has been burned off and judged and done away with. So it's only by being subjected to that judgment, which is excruciatingly painful. And we're going to go through it, I think. Um, God's merciful love burns that stuff away, and we're ultimately brought back into the presence of God. Um, so I would talk in terms of judgment as strict accountability, where we're, held, we're actually held responsible for our actions in, in this life. Um, it, all of the horrible ways that we've colluded with evil and, and death and sin. Um, and this will be obviously very painful for us. Um, and then we can be in the presence of God. Uh, you were kind of cutting out there, but I think I, I grasped it all. Are you still there? I saw you freeze, too. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. Why didn't you say this a long time ago? Because this makes a lot more sense. Because you should have said this in response to... <laughs> have you? And I missed it? I don't know. Because you still believe in destruction. You still believe in punishment. I believe in the, the, the destruction of the flesh and sin and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Right. Which is burned a, away. Which is a punishment. It's and, not retributive. But, but yeah. Right. It's different than saying that that destruction is the that last eschatological horizon. It's you saying that, that with this. Um, sorry. <laughs> this, is, this is helpful for me then um, to figure out how to explain this then. Because uh, if that's helpful for you, then yeah, this is where yes, I go. Because because the problem is I see so many passages saying destruction death and i see it um as an end as as a, a possible punishment even if it's not retributive yeah um, and you could say yes but and that's fine you know there's always buts when people disagree with each other but if you can also agree uh i'm, I'm just giving you advice <laughs> sorry uh you don't have to take any of it i'm just thinking uh i was just thinking had um because there's so many misconceptions 
including my own, because this is a misconception that I have. There's, there's no punishment. You're get, uh, yeah, you're getting off, uh, scot free or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but yeah, that, 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 that makes a lot more sense and makes it a lot. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm inclined to use the word coherent, but it makes it, it just makes more sense to me now. Yeah. Have I convinced you? Have I done my apologetic job and convinced? I'm just kidding. Yeah. John and Laura, the upcoming Christian apologists <laughs> in YouTube land. Yeah. Love that, that. That's helpful. I mean, it's hard to figure out when to talk about judgment specifically because I, I don't want to talk about too much negative stuff up front. Oh, right. So I'm and even talking though, to a fellow Christian who already, you know, I think you should lead with yeah. it. If you're talking. Uh, like you don't like talking about it and stuff, especially with non-believers, um, perhaps. But for someone who's either on the eternal conscious torment side of things or on the annihilationist side of things, the reason they're there is because they see the destruction in the texts. Like I've been, like in Second Thessalonians, like I was talking about. Yeah, and so what I was assuming behind my response to to you sort of exegetically when i was talking about the philippians passage and the second thessalonians one the reason why i was questioning the language of destruction was coming from this place too of i think that's a different eschatological horizon that's happening there which is why i think age is being used um so yeah anyway Okay, uh, thanks so much for joining us, guys. Uh, I There was at least one question that I was tagged in in the live chat, um, so I, I want to get to that. But first, just want to say thanks for joining us. It's been a long one. This is but definitely the longest uh, episode we've had. So thanks uh, for those who stuck around. And uh, we'll be sure to have John on again for some uh, various other topics. Uh, but if you want to watch the bonus segment, Five More Minutes with John DePew, be sure to follow the Patreon link in the description below, and you'll get access to uh, all of our uh, bonus segments whenever you become a supporter over there. As also get access to merchandise and other uh, bonus material that is available at Patreon only. So be sure and go over there. Um, let's see. Uh, John, do you think any of the biblical authors may have assumed different views on salvation? Who and why? Um, I think, uh, Matthew seemed to be working differently than uh, Paul in Matthew 5 is judgment text there um, I think being a sheep is dependent upon basically doing stuff in accordance with this new Christological account of the Torah it's still something you do. He's not talking about, he doesn't talk about faith as, as something that you have to meet um, apart from works in order to get saved. I think Matthew's account of salvation has to do with stuff that you do. Um, I That might make people uncomfortable, <laughs> but I think Matthew has a kind of works-based account of salvation. I really do. Um, and that clashes, I think, with Paul at a very fundamental level. Um, which what I'm fine with, with saying. That? What do you do with that? Some I just think that... say um, you've now admitted that the Bible has a contradiction in it. And I would agree with that. Um, I'm, I'm, this, is, this is why I, I really like um, Bauer on this, which is to, to think about New Testament documents in terms of this sort of like uh, 
clashes between different groups of uh, Jesus followers, there is a kind of like tension that's going on historically. He didn't sort of spell it out um, ultimately in a way that I, I think was helpful, but I think think about the New Testament as we have in terms of a clash of different approaches to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, I just think that's what that's what's happening. You have Paul and his opponents constantly going back and forth too in his letters. We know that that's happening. Um, and I, I think that gives warrant to, say, to see the same sort of thing going on in the Bible. Yeah. In, in I, I just think that's what's happening. And I'm, I'm not an inerrantist, um, and I'm not wanting to hold on to this idea that the Bible is perfectly consistent at all. Um, so, uh, yeah, I have no problem with, with saying that. So. Uh, okay. Another question was, do you believe that Paul was unequivocally right or correct in all that he affirms why or why not um unequivocally right what he affirms so basically is paul inerrant do you take basically everything paul says to um, be true <laughs> no and if is there an example of something paul says that you think is false yeah, I think, um in the house of the household codes in Ephesians and Colossians, I think that he's stepping away in some ways from what he's actually made elsewhere theologically. Um, in terms of in Christ, there is no Jew nor slave nor free, male and female. That once you set up this kind of hierarchical relationship between men and women in the church, there's something weird going on there. Um, and obviously, for me, in terms of reading those other texts that seem to be very different than what Paul commits to elsewhere. Um, I think that uh, I would kind of basically do what I did before and push that, what I've decided as part of hermetic into those other texts that seem to clash with that. Um, so I disagree with what Paul is saying about men and women <laughs> and slaves and, and masters in that text. I don't think he's right. So... Um. I think I'll need to, this is from uh, Jonathan uh, Tuttle. Yeah, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, it says, John. Yeah, Johnny. Is, yeah. Sure. I, I figured it was somebody you knew. That's why I was going to go ahead and say their name. Yes. Uh, John is this uh, purgation. I don't know how to pronounce words, guys. I'm sorry. Purgation of uh, no. refiner's fire, still a punitive act of God. Thinking back to RJ with Campbell and the distinction between punishment and consequence. Is it punitive? That no, it's restorative. Yet? Yeah, yeah. No, no it's it's. Now said, is is uh, is this purgation of refiner's fire still a punitive act of God? And in parentheses, he says, "I'm thinking back to R.J. with Campbell and the distinction between punishment and consequence." So, so R.J. he's referring to restorative justice class. Oh, okay, with sorry. Um, <laughs> so what I, I was I was kind of referencing that because um, I know where he's he's wanting me to go with that and i agree that it's it's restorative the refining fire is for the purpose of restoration of the person as they've been created to be from before the foundation of the world uh the restoration is happening ultimately but what needs to happen to make that restoration happen is for that other stuff to get burned off um 
Well, this happened to, uh, I'm thinking into Revelations, where they're thrown into the lake of fire. Is this lake of fire refiner's fire, or is this something, would you do so, something totally different with that verse? Oh, I don't, I don't know what to do with uh, Revelation in general. Um, it's full of images and yeah. So I was thinking metaphor. Like, uh, it's Satan and the beast are described as being thrown into the fire, and so I was wondering if you were on that side where even Satan and the uh, Satan gets saved. And uh, what to do with, with it? Yeah, I don't. I, I don't maybe um, I'm not. I haven't thought about that very much. Maybe that's something to do. Um, no, that's fine. I was just curious. But yeah, I, uh, I don't know because yeah, Satan and, and the beast are the ones thrown into that fire in that text. Mm -hmm. But just in terms of Revelation in general, I. I don't know. It's just so. It's such a beast of a text, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. It's... Okay, so last comment is from Salem. Uh, S A L E. I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. It says, Tell John. Salem. Huh? Salem. Oh, geez. Salem. Yes. I think obviously. this is Inspiring Christianity. I think that's I'm... who it is. I'm sorry? I think it's Inspiring Christianity. I think that's who this is. Salem. Oh, yes. Okay. Hello, Salem. Uh, tell John he is amazing. I have really appreciated all your interviews <laughs> with him. You need to do more interviews with him. Smiley face. So yes, John is amazing. We've become oh, we've become good friends. So. You have. Um, looking yeah. forward to uh, more conversations and uh, having John on the on the podcast again. Uh, but for now, we're gonna go. So thank you so much for joining us. If you want to watch the bonus segment again, just head on over to the. Uh, Patreon website, uh, the link is in the description below and you become a supporter and you get access to not only this lovely bonus segment, but all of them. John, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it, sir. Thanks, Hayden.